This is a picture of who we want to be as a community. And I've made mention that this, we are now in the third week of this series that we've titled Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. It's a word that's used almost exclusively in the New Testament for church. And really what it means is assembly or gathering. When the church gathered in the New Testament, it wasn't like we gather today. It wasn't in, in buildings with programs and stuff. It was a gathering of people that were committed to following the Lord together. And they shared life together. They did life together. And over these past two weeks and for this week and next week, I'm vision casting for the church that I believe we are called to be. For what that ecclesia really looks like. Because our picture of church is not something that you can attend and then leave. It's actually who we are all the time. When we gather in, in life groups, when we gather for dinner in someone's home, when we hang out together, when, when we're here on Sunday morning, when we're down in the park, we are the church, the assembly, the gathering of the people of God that say, Jesus, we want to follow you. And as we look at what it means to live into this together, I've kind of been doing it intentionally through the lens of giving. Because one of the heartbeats that I have as a church is that we would create a biblically based like heartbeat for being, having generous lives, for living in a really generous way. That as a community we would have this outpouring of the love that God has lavished on us. That our heartbeat would be to reflect the love that God has so poured on our lives it would almost just seep out of every pore that we are. And we would be giving away our hearts, and we'd be giving away our lives, and we'd be giving away our resources. And so the way that we think about church is really through the lens of what it means to live in a really generous way. So over the past couple of weeks, I've been casting vision um, for our church and where God is leading us. And last week, I shared our story as a community. Story's important to me. I mentioned that earlier. And I shared our story from start to finish on on where we, uh, have begun, where we began and where we're going and where God is leading us to. And if you didn't get a chance to really hear that or you've never heard our story as a community, I really encourage you to go by the website and listen to it. I'm not going to share all that again. But go by the website and listen to last week's message because part of our story is really important if you want to grasp really where God is kind of leading us. So I shared that with us, with everybody last week, and each week I've been kind of doing two things, in re, or, or three things in relation to that story. I've been sharing a, a vision point, which is, where are we going to be in 2012? What is our heartbeat as a church, as a community, where is God leading us? What's our vision? And I get that question all the time. Trip, where are we going? What is your vision for the vine? Well, I've been sharing points of that vision. I've been sharing action points, which is really the answer to the question, what does my church desire for me? So if you're, you're telling us where we're going and who we want to be, what do you want from me? How can I, myself, pour into this community? We've been sharing action points. And then we've been sharing a teaching point where we open up scripture and say, man, what does God say to us with this idea of generous living and what it means to live into to our vision? So by brief recap and really brief, the, the vision points that we've shared thus far are this. The first week I shared that our vision for 2012, um, first and foremost, revolves around worship. Our heartbeat is that we want to be an authentic worshiping community. It's, it's our first core value. We want to be driven by worship. Everything that we are wants to be kind of because of and end with worship. And not worship that takes place in this little 55 minute or hour and 15 minute event that we do on Sunday morning, but worship really that it kind of exposes all that we are. That everything in our hearts and our lives is driven by that. That we have a desire to see people in, encounter the living God in, in a way that is impactful for them. That we want to worship in this place, that we want to worship in the park, that we want our life groups to be about the glory and honor and praise of God. That we want our kids to be introduced to Christ. 
And we talked a lot about the fact that this venue has sort of reached some of its limits for us because of our inability to really do worship well with children and some other things, that we aren't attached to this space. And, and we begin to lay the fr- framework for the idea that we may be moving into different venue space that would allow us to really worship in, in a different manner where everyone, kids and all, could have an opportunity to encounter Christ. And that we aren't defined by location, we're instead defined by the God that we worship. So we talked about that. And then last week we talked about our vision point being Vine Kids. If you've been around here at all, you recognize that we have a lot of young children. In fact, on some Sundays we have as many as, as 20 to 25 kids under the first grade. Like we have a lot of little kids. We have a growing number of elementary school kids as well. We have a heartbeat to reach middle school kids and high school kids. Really, our kids right now are in a hallway outside the restroom. There's not space for them to worship and grow and learn. Developmentally, we can't take our infants and separate them from our our third graders. We've kind of got everybody mixed into one. And while we can live with that reality for a little while, we have a bigger heart for children. We want to be able to train and equip our families to disciple their own kids and love our families really well. And part of our limitation to space is that we can't do that. We can't give kids in appropriate age groups a space to learn about God in a context that is going to be meaningful, meaningful and powerful to them. In 2012, we were placing a high value on Vine Kids. We were placing a high value on our children and on our parents. Not because we recognize that we want new families, but because we want to take great care of the families that God has blessed us with. We want to be really in love with the families that God has given us. And so we want to love those kids well. And we want to steward them well and teach them about the goodness of who God is. In 2012, we're also going to be making a move to begin to hire a Vine Kids director that would then love on and disciple and train our families and our kids really well. Um, and, and so that's part of our vision for 2012 as well. Well, our vision point for today um, is, is revolves around the idea of mission. Now, if you've been around us at all, you know that mission is a huge kind of part of who we are. And it, it is, as Kristen mentioned, vision, our mission for us is really more about perspective than it is program. We don't have a lot of mission programs. We have a perspective, a relational way of seeing the world. We think that mission exists in your world every day, that there's not a team, a part of the vine that does mission. Our entire community is involved in mission. Our entire community is, is challenged to see the world differently. The Manapak idea, church in the park idea, all these things are really driven by our desire to see the world totally differently through the eyes of Christ. Mission is about perspective for us. We want you to see your world differently. We want you to see your workplace differently. We want you to see the man on the corner differently. We want to see your, your husband and your wife and your family members differently. We want to see your neighbors differently. We want you to see the world through the eyes of Christ. And it's about perspective. We are committed to partnering with like-minded people and churches and organizations all over the world to be about a whole lot of things. From seeing people come to encounter the radical gospel of Jesus Christ to, to partnering with the, those that are suffering injustice. We want to be a part of what God is doing around the world. And we're really going to do this in three ways as we think about 2012. We're going to do it through those partnerships that I mentioned. We're going to support and partner with missionaries all over the world. Right now we celebrate uh, relationships with missionaries in six different countries. Right? We've partnered with several of them. We've been to China, we've been to Guatemala. Those are missionaries that we love and support and care for. We have a heartbeat to partner with organizations that are doing work that we can't do, both in our local community and in our global community. We want to support them and fund them and be a part of what they're doing. We're going to partner with Rebuilding Together on on November 19th to help further their mission in our own community. We want to be about partnering with people that are following Christ. We also want to do it by sending people. 
we as a community want to send people into the mission field, both locally and globally. And not just one time a year, but we want to be about supporting missionaries where they are. You know, one of our own, own community members, Burke Lewis, is a member uh, or is a part of Campus Crusade in Norman, and he loves college kids, and we want to be a part of his heartbeat to see college kids meet Jesus. We want to be a part of sending teams to places like Africa and China and Bosnia and Guatemala. We want to be about sending people. You feel like God is calling you to go somewhere. We want to be a part of sending you, even if it's just four blocks over. We want to send people to go and do Bible study in places that people won't go. We want to be a part of loving people that most of the world won't love. We want to send people. If you're feeling called or moved to start something here, in our, I want to start doing this in our own city, down off whatever street. I want, to, I want to do something in my apartment complex. We want to support that, fund it, and be a part of it. If you want to launch a Bible study in an apartment complex in southwest Oklahoma City, we want to partner with you, support you, and make that happen. We want to send people. The church is a sent body. The gospel does not exist for us to run our programs up flagpoles and say, hey, look what the vine is doing. We created some kind of program for this. We actually see the gospel as this sent message that meets people where they are. We believe that we should take the gospel into the world and step into the lives of people and say, this is what God has done for me, and I want to introduce you to him because he has changed my life. So we want to be a sending church. We also want to be a church that gives. So we partner, we send, and we give. We give. So we support mission by giving dollars. Let me tell you about one of the commitments that we've made. Currently, right now, of our program budget, 10% of all of our program dollars go straight out the door to mission and other gospel-centered kind of mission evangelistic concepts. We have a deep passion as a church to be a dollar-for-dollar church, which means this. 50 cents of every dollar that comes in our door from people in our community that give and from your tithes and your offerings, we want to send right out our door to support God's global kingdom picture. And we are committed as a leadership team to raising our percentage 5% every year until we hit a 50% goal. I mean, this is almost unheard of for a startup church to think this way. But we are passionate about seeing God's kingdom expand beyond ourselves. And so each year we're making a commitment to increase our mission giving by 5% until we hit 50% where every dollar... We're taking 50% and sending it right out to impact the world with the gospel of Christ. This is what we're committed to. And in a, in a culture and in avenues where we have distrust for organizational, institutional church and what they do with dollars, we want to be up front by saying, look, we are committed to how we think about mission in 2012. And we are committed to spending dollars that have a kingdom purpose. So in 2012, we're committed to, to authentic worship that may involve different space for us to be able to worship differently. We're committed to kids that are going to allow, being, doing something for them that's going to allow them to worship in an avenue that is, and learn in an avenue that, that helps their develop. We're going to find someone that wants to love these kids really well for us and do it in a way that says, man, we want your families to know about Christ as well. And we're committed to partnering and sending and giving the mission in a way that is absolutely and totally radical. And we'll turn all of our lives a little bit upside down in the process. And in 2012, we're going to ask you to partner with some things that are going to push all of our boundaries as we begin to think differently about what it means to be church. And as Christian sat up here and shared, this is your part of our community. It's not some team that goes, does and does all the radical stuff. You've got to see your world differently. 
That's our vision for 2012. We'll share our last vision point next week. So, which begs the question, okay, so what does my church ask from me? Well, first week I ask you to pray. Pray for your church and your leadership team. Pray for your pastor. We are a, a culture that doesn't really pray for our churches unless they're in crisis. We think everything is going okay if I don't hear anything. But the truth is the more we follow Christ and the more we put our footsteps in the places where Jesus put his feet, the more we're going to run into the enemy in opposition. We need you to pray for this church. Your leaders are, are facing a lot of work ahead as we chart the course for the church that we're called to be. And we need you to begin to pray deeply and desperately that God would grant us favor with people and that God would prepare the way for us to follow and that we would keep our feet in line with the footsteps of Jesus. We need you to commit. Our second vision point was to commit. Look, this is your church, your community. It doesn't belong to somebody else. It belongs to you, so get involved. There's opportunity lists. If you've got to find a, find a place to plug in, you want to deliver bread for us, you want to be a part of our prayer team, whatever, we need help. This can't be eight of us that decides that we're going to try and do church together. I mean, if you've got some, some energy and you want to help us set up, you know, let us know. We want to take advantage of using the whole of the community to make the community work. Get involved in a life group. If you're not involved with one, you don't have one, we'll help you start one. We've got life groups that exist, and we need you to kind of break into that culture. It's really hard for the culture to absorb you. On some level, you've got to risk a little bit and say, okay, I, I want to engage in, in that system and find true life, and, and I want to do life together. We need you to commit to where we are and to being a part of, of making this community function as a community that reflects Christ in the world. And then finally, we need you to give, and it goes a little bit along with mission, and I'm going to talk a little bit about money for just a minute, because it is important that you understand what we're doing and where we're going, and we think about the action point for today, which is, is giving, okay? And that is this, as I mentioned last week, in 2009, we were planted as a mission com community of Westminster Presbyterian Church, and in 2011, the, the leadership of Westminster Church um, kind of supported our vision as a church to go off and be released as a self-governing, self-sustaining, a really God-governing, God-sustaining, independent, non-denominational church, January 1st, 2013, which is just a year and a few months away. And this date is important because it gives our leadership team time enough to do the things that it's going to take to start this church and all the work that needs to just happen from a, just a, a kind of an organizational standpoint, but it also gives us the opportunity to begin to really think about financially how we take over our life together. Because up until now, Westminster as a mission community has really supported the majority of our life together. But in 2012, this upcoming year, they're only supporting, which is still an amazing blessing, 12% of our total stewardship or, or our desired financial goal. So it's a significant decrease because it's challenging us as a community to say, if we're going to really live as a church, we have to own the whole of the body. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to begin to talk a little bit about resources and money and stuff because... It's, important part, it's an important part of discipleship and worship when you start to think about giving. Now, I know everyone kind of cringes a little bit when the church talks about giving because on some level, we've all been jaded, we've all been injured, we've all been hurt by the way institutional church handles dollars or by what we see on TV. So we're going to talk about it from an incredibly biblical standpoint and we're going to put everything out before you so that you know exactly what we're talking about. But if you're here for the first time, what I don't want you to do is freak out and be like, man, every time I go to church, the guy's talking about dollars. We're not really talking about dollars as much as we're talking about where your heart is. You were given a pledge card this morning because that's how we plan our future. It's important for us as a church to know what our avenues of income are so that we can begin to plan really well. And I want to say a word about these pledge cards. And that's this. If you are here for the first time or the second time or the third time, that pledge card is not for you. 
okay? Please don't feel like we want you to support this community. Our heartbeat is that you would see your time with us here is blessing enough. Like just you being here and trusting us with an hour on your Sunday is a blessing. So ignore the pledge card. You don't have to give a nickel. You know, right? That's just how we think about our financial future. And, it, and it's a good way for you to th- kind of look at and see how we think about our financial life. Because it's important. But ignore that pledge card. That pledge card is for those of us that are involved in this community, that are consider this community our home, that come regularly. Because part of what we're going to be talking about the next, next two weeks is that not only does, does God desire for us to give our heart to Jesus and our lives to people, but he desires for us to lay our resources at his feet. Our money and our stuff belong to the Lord. We laid that foundation last week when we talked about that everything in our lives, everything in our lives and our very lives belong to Christ as followers of Christ. As I wrap this whole little section up, I'll, I'll make mention of the same thing I've mentioned two times in a row, which is this. This church does not want your money. I mean, hear me say that. God will provide for us. We do not want your money until you have first given your life to Christ. If you are not following Christ, walking in his footsteps, and we don't want your dollars. We care more about your eternal security than we do about where your wallet is. We want you to give your heart to Jesus Christ, find your treasure in heaven, before you ever think about putting one dollar in whatever offering plate that we have. We don't care if you come from now until the end of time. We just want you to give your life to Jesus. God will take care of us. We're not going to stand up here and hound every week for money. We're just going to say, look, if you feel compelled, give. But don't give until you've given your life to Christ. Because we can't understand true giving until we understand the God who gave the life of his son for us. Giving makes no sense. It's just some activity. But when we understand that God of the universe loved me and loved you so much that he sacrificed his own son, he gave everything, and that my life and my stuff belong to him, well, giving takes on a whole new picture and actually becomes an act of worship. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to give our resources. This week, we're going to sort of name the tension that exists, okay? And next week, we're going to talk about how to relieve that tension as we explore the fact that God wants us to give our lives, our hearts to Christ, our lives to people, and our resources to the kingdom of God. So that's where we're going to go, and that's where we've been. I know it's a lot of talking, but it's really important because to just stand up here and, and not let you know where God is leading really doesn't give us much to buy into. So if we're going to be this church, this ecclesia that God is calling us to be, we've got to know where we're going. Which means when you buy into this community with your life, with your dollars, with whoever, you know, with your time, you're really allowing us to live as a community that reflects Christ to the world in terms of worship and kids and mission. I mean, these are high-value things. And the, the kind of framework of our community will shift and change over the next 12 months pretty dramatically. And we're really excited about what God is doing. Last thing I'll say about the pledge cards is this. We're going to be having this opportunity next week to make this an important part of our worship. I'll tell you a little bit more about the end, at the end of all this. But we want you to pray over that pledge card. Just pray over it. Go, God, are you, are you challenging my wife and I or my husband and I or family and I or myself or whatever just to, to be involved in the future of the vine, to own this community. And if so, what does that look like? We're going to pray over it, and then next week we want you to bring them. You're going to see, there's an envelope, seal it. We're, you know, we're not going to have everybody look at it. We're not going to post them or anything like that, like, you know, winner gets an iPod or whatever. I'm not doing any of that kind of stuff, of course. We just want you to bring them, because what we're going to do is part of our worship experience um, next week, we're going to have this awesome time of worship where we have an opportunity to lay our gifts at the feet of God. And so we want you to bring those things so that we can celebrate what God is doing together. So, this week, our resources. Here's the deal. 
we, before we can really talk about resources and money and stuff, we've got to name that there's a, a significant tension that exists in our lives, okay? And I think we have to be really honest about it because most of us like to pretend it's not there as followers of Christ because it's really awkward. But the truth is there is a tension and conflict that exists every single day between God and between our stuff. And when I use the word stuff, I'm actually meaning all of it. Money, resources, your TV, your car, your job, kind of your future, your mutual funds, your bank account, whatever you think I'm not referring to, I'm actually referring to that. Because I think we justify a lot of, I say, well, Trump says our money, he means, you know, our checking account. No, I actually mean all of it, even the stuff that you put away in your 401k for retirement. You know, when I say stuff, I mean all of it, not just whatever little car you have that barely runs. I'm talking about the 55-inch HDTV or your little iPod or your coach purse or your North Face jacket or whatever it is. I'm talking about all of it. So when I say stuff and resources, don't hide behind the fact that I'm not talking to you. The truth is, is that if we're really honest, there is a conflict when we read scripture between God and our stuff. It's a tension. And I don't think the church does a very good job of naming that tension. But today we're going to try and name it a little bit. And next week we're going to talk about how we live a life that relieves that tension. Because I think that most of us can, can get around Get by ignoring it for a while, but eventually it just comes up. And we live in this constant state of stress and this constant state of tension and conflict over God and our stuff. And it really boils down to this. Who is our ruler? Who rules our life? God or our stuff? We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 6 looking at a verse and a few verses that we have looked at a bunch of times. Because I think we're going to keep looking at it until we finally decide that we're going to get it. Okay, Because I think we do this in scripture. We read something once, we're kind of convicted a little bit, and then we can dismiss it. But when we continue to come against it time after time after time again, eventually God just begins to burrow it into our hearts and we begin to think it and know it. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19 and 21, and we're going to jump down to 24. Because I think really, and we've mentioned this a few times over the past few weeks, but really what we've got to do is understand that our resources are attached to our hearts and our lives. All right? they, there is no way to divorce the two. Our stuff, our money, our resources, our bank accounts, our jobs, our TVs, our cars, our houses, our apartments, whatever. They are attached to our hearts and our Live. So let's take a look at this very familiar text, and we're going to use it as a backdrop for really defining the tension and conflict that exists in our life between God and our stuff. So let's take a second, let's just pray and ask God to uh, prepare us to meet with Him. Lord, I know that, like I said last week, these are a lot of words to get us to this place, but I do think it's important, and I think it's important that as a church we understand where you're leading us, we understand who we are, and we understand who we're not. So, Lord, we lay kind of all this at your feet, and we confess that talking about money is awkward and hard, and, and it's one of those things that none of us really want to have to hear, and the church never really wants to have to say, but, but God, you talk about it almost more than anything in Scripture. I mean, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about anything else in Scripture, and so, God, it's, it's a tension that exists. It's a reality there, and I think we have to deal with that truth. And so, God, I ask that you would just prepare our hearts, that if we have walls or boundaries or if we have frustrations or, or ways that we've been jaded in the past about the church and about money, I pray that you would just kind of destroy those a little bit. That you would simplify the way that we think. And that, God, you would teach our hearts through your word. 
take just a moment and ask God to just kind of remove any barriers that you have when it comes to thinking about money and stuff and resources in the church. Just ask him to remove those from your heart. God, we pray that you would be glorified in every word that we speak and that we say and that we hear today. God, that everything would be about your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this little passage comes on the tail end of uh, Matthew chapter, well, towards the end of Matthew chapter 6, which is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching a whole bunch of gathered people, and this is what he said. He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Jump down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this is actually a verse that we've used a, a lot because we talk about heart and treasure and life over the past few weeks, and it, and it really is wrapped up with, with where we keep our idea of things and stuff and what we take kind of pride in here on earth. And so it's important that this, this passage just kind of, we look at it over and over and over again. But here's the conflict. There is a fundamental daily conflict between you and your stuff, your money, your bank accounts, your job, your things, and God. We have to admit that that tension exists. All right, We can't read scripture and ignore it. We looked last week at a kind of, a, a, or the week before that at a, at a parable where, or a story where Jesus is telling people that it's, it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Remember we talked about that? We talked about what it meant to give your heart. You can't get around these things in scripture. There is a tension between money and resources and stuff and who God is. And really it kind of narrows down to this, this idea, who is the ruler of our lives? I think there are three realities we have to understand before we really can really grasp firmly this tension. And the first reality is this. We are driven by our desire for stuff. Now I know what you're sitting there thinking, you're going, no, I'm not driven by my desire for stuff. Now, they may be driven by their desire for things. They've got four cars and this house and they've got this. I mean, but really, I don't care about things. I'm not driven by my desire for money. I mean, it doesn't drive me. What that really means to me is that you're not driven by your desire for certain things. We are all driven by our desire for stuff. I promise you, if you really look at your life closely, you are driven by your desire for stuff. Now, name and define stuff however you want to. Sometimes it's a career, sometimes it's job, sometimes it's status, sometimes it's a, a new TV or new electronics or a car or a house or a bank account or a certain dollar figure for retirement or just to keep up with someone around you or you, you know, your car's broken and you want this one and, and I mean we are driven by it. Our culture pushes us in that direction. It is a fallacy to think that we are not driven by our desire for things. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in this room is like incredibly materialistic. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that at the core of who we are, we are a people that are driven by our desire for stuff, for money, for resources, for things. We are driven that way. Think about how, I mean, your desire for clothes and your desire for, I mean, attention. I mean, we are just driven by it. We have to admit that reality. And that reality leads us into a, a very interesting cycle. And that is this. We are inclined to desire stuff. 
I mean, think about it. Our culture pushes us that way. You watch commercials on TV. You kind of look at the people next to you. So-and-so got a new car. He got a different job. They got the, we are pushed in a, in, a, in a direction that causes us to desire these things. Not to mention, we're just sinful. I mean, we're just sinful people. But we are, are inclined to desire things. Our culture kind of lays it out that way. I mean, it's just our natural inclination as sinful people to want stuff, right? We are also inclined to try and acquire stuff. So the cycle is we want it, we desire it, and we're inclined to go out and get it. I mean, last Friday I, I drove to my, my six-year-old to preschool, and as I was driving down the road, I saw this, just this pack of people, I mean, at this, this retail store, and it was like 8-something in the morning, and I was going, what is going on? And the cars were everywhere, and there were tents out there, and there were people wrapped around the building. And what I realized was it was a line for the new iPhone 4S. I mean, camped out, right? We are driven by our desire to acquire stuff. If you've ever gotten up at 3 a.m. the day after Thanksgiving, for whatever reason, you are driven by your desire to acquire things. I'm not saying that that's not, that that's, you know, you're saving money. I get all that. Don't tell me all those excuses. The truth is we're driven by our desire to acquire stuff. We want it, and we're going to try and get it. So we're going to try and make more money. We're going to try and save up so that we can get that, so we can do this. Put the down payment on for the house or buy the car or save up for that jacket or, or, or whatever, those shoes or whatever, those boots. I don't care. The truth is, is that we are driven to, now we're inclined to want to acquire it. So we're driven by our desire for it. We're, we are inclined to acquire it. We are then inclo- uh, inclined to accumulate stuff. So, you know, we have houses that are huge compared to the rest of the world. The standard of the rest of the world, we live in huge homes. And even right now, if you think your home is small or if your apartment is tiny, I promise you it is massive compared to the global scale. I mean, I have stood in these places in all the countries I've been that are touch both walls with both your hands and we lay on the floor. I mean, your house is massive. Your apartment is massive. We have garages that hold the stuff that our houses don't hold. We hold attics that hold the stuff that our houses and our garages don't hold. We rent storage units to hold the stuff that our houses and our garages and our attics don't hold. We are driven to accumulate stuff. And not just like physical things, but we do it with money. Think about all the avenues there are to accumulate your dollars. Checking account, savings account, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, I mean, you know, retirement plans. You think about it, our culture and our, de- our cycle leads us to accumulate stuff. We desire it, we try and acquire it, and then we try and store it, right? When we begin to store it, we're naturally inclined to love it. And we are a culture that loves our stuff. I mean, think about what your life would look like without your cell phone. Think about what your life would look like without your 55-inch HD TV. I mean, if you were to take a 19-inch TV with rabbit ears, if they still allowed you to do that, you know, when we grew up, we had tinfoil on those rabbit ears like this, you know, kind of, you had to point it to the sky to get those four channels. And no remotes, right? I mean, you take, you take one of those TVs and you stick it in your, your living room. I mean, if your family's like mine, we would die. I don't think we would be able to survive, right? It would be chaos in our home. I mean... I can't watch TV that way. To actually get off the couch and push a button to change the channel, that is insane. I remember when my, my family brought home the first Betamax ever. I mean, we were, I was like eight. My dad brought home this thing in the box, probably like two grand, you know. It was a Betamax. It didn't last very long. But it had a remote on a cord, right? And it was like eight feet. You were good as long as you were eight foot circle with this remote on a cord. But it was like the coolest thing ever. I mean, you, we couldn't have a Betamax in our house or a remote on a cord. My kids would be like whipping each other with it. I mean, we love our stuff. It drives us. And we love our money. We worship our money, whether we want to admit it or not. We check our balances every three days, not to make sure we didn't go below 100, but just to make sure it's still there. 
You know, I mean, we get our, our statements from whatever, mutual funds or whatever, and, and we're furious when it goes down. I mean, we love our stuff. So here's the cycle. We're driven and inclined to desire it. We're inclined to acquire it. We're inclined to accumul- accumulate it, and we're inclined to love it. All right, that is just the reality. We are driven by our desire for stuff. The second reality is this. God desires to be the first and most important thing in your life. You cannot read scripture without running absolutely headlong into that truth. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. It was, it was basically laid out there because God loved Israel so much, his people so much, that he didn't want anything to come between him and who they were. And he wasn't just talking about tangible gods, he was talking about all those things that we worship. You know, ideas and people and other religion and gods and poles and figures and calves. He's saying you should have nothing that comes before your love for me. Jesus, when he's talking to a bunch of religious leaders, they're trying to trick him. And they say, okay, so teacher, tell us what's the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus says the first commandment, it was kind of a trap, but Jesus says the first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. It's the first commandment. Basically, Jesus is, is kind of expounding on that first commandment, which is, it's not just about not having other God, it's about loving God with everything that you are, your heart and your soul and your mind. You see the reality? God wants to be first. We've got this cycle and desire for stuff that we love. And that reality, these two realities set up that tension. We desire, we acquire, we accumulate, and we love and serve and store stuff. And God wants to be first. And the truth is, is that there, are, there is no room in our life to let God be first and premier when we love our stuff. When we see our stuff as our stuff and our things and our money and our resources, we move God out of the picture and the equation. It's why I mentioned last week that one of the, the fundamental things we have to understand as followers of Christ is that my life and my things belong to Jesus. When I gave my life to Christ, I gave him all of it. So if my stuff and my life and my things belong to Jesus then I can live with this reality. But when my stuff and my life and my things belong to me, when they're what I desire and I try to inquire and accumulate and I store and I love and I worship, there is no room for that. And that is a constant tension. It is constant painful and it is constantly stressful. It's why your, your life is full of financial stress. I can promise you that because you have not reconciled these two things. It's why my life is full of financial stress because we have not reconciled these two things well. But there's a third reality I want you to understand that comes out of that that verse 24 in there, which is is really this, and I'll just read it to you again, and we'll be done. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here's the third reality. We have a desire to acquire and accumulate and store and love and worship our stuff. We have a God who wants to be first and foremost and premier in our life. The third reality is this, you cannot love or serve both of these things. It means you can't split your time and your heart between your stuff and your money and God. It says you can't have two masters. You cannot do it. You know in scripture, I think a lot of us live with the misconception that God's trying to get his hands on our money. I think that's what we really think somehow, that God wants our stuff, and, and we kind of jade at the church and whatnot because God wants to, to get what we've worked hard for, and I've worked really hard for my life, and he's going to make me give it all away. You know, in Scripture, Jesus never once asks for money. 
Actually, it may not be totally true. There was one little scenario where, where he's, he's kind of teaching about taxes, and he asks someone if they have a coin. Remember that? And they say, yeah. And he says, who's on the front of it? They're like Caesar. And he says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. We don't know that Jesus took it. But he, if he did, he gave it back. But Jesus never asked for money. He's not like, hey, disciples, you're going to follow me. I'm going to need you to cough up some dollars so we can really make this thing work. We need a new bus or a camel or whatever. I mean, nothing. Jesus never asks for money. You know that God doesn't want your stuff? God has no need for your money. He has no need for your stuff. Your sweater won't even fit him. I mean, he doesn't need your TV. He does not need your things. We live in this kind of fear that God is trying to get his hands on my things. The truth is, God doesn't want your stuff. God doesn't want your stuff to get you. I mean, that's what this is all about. We're living in a culture and a life where our stuff owns us, where we serve it and we live for it. And God's desire is not to get his hands on it. God's desire is not to get it. But God's desire is that it wouldn't get you. And when we live in this constant tension, our stuff and our life and our desires and even our our financial goals, well, they get us. And we tend to give God out of whatever's left or out of whatever kind of abundance there may or may not be. And when we do that, We can't reconcile these two things, and we live in constant stress and tension. We have to name it. We can't understand how to eliminate it or how to relieve it until we name the tension. And the question we're left with this morning is, in light of those realities, in light of what we read about where our treasure is and where our hearts are, not storing up things and serving money, I mean, where is your heart? Who is your ruler? What is your ruler? Is it God? All that he is in all his majestic glory And that your life is his and all of your stuff is his? Or is it really stuff? And if it's not totally stuff, I promise you're trying to do somewhere in the middle, which is what the Bible says you cannot do. You can't serve them both. Next week, we're going to take this a step further. We're going to talk about how you relieve that tension. So if you want to listen to what Scripture says about how you relieve that tension, I promise the answer is not going to be leave all your money at the floor here and leave. I mean, we're not going to do that. But I want to tell you what the Bible says about how to relieve the tension of financial and stuff stress in your life. Because if we're going to be a community that gives our hearts and our lives, we have to be a community that gives our resources as well. Because we're going to live generously and be generous people. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord. Next week, I want you to pray over these pledge cards and think about this that we talked about today in that category. God, whose stuff is this anyway? Whose money is it anyway? What are you calling me to be a part of? And we're going to offer this up as an opportunity to worship next week as we explore what this means to really lay down our life and our resources. So my hope is that on some level you begin to live in a little bit of conviction because when we live in conviction, it means the Holy Spirit's rooting around in our life and there's no other place I'd rather you be. We're going to invite Don, the band, to come back up and, and close us out in worship this morning as we kind of wrap up this picture and what this look is of when we give our hearts and our lives over to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we